Let's turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 18. This morning as we continue our series through the book of Job, this morning we come to chapter 18, and this is the second speech of Bildad, one of Job's friends, so-called friends, one of those miserable comforters as he has called them. And uh, hear God's word as it comes to us here in chapter 18. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Mike Mason, in his book, The Gospel According to Job, is commenting on these first three verses of Job 18, and he has as the title, Unspiritual Leadership. Mason writes these words, he says, There is no record of Job having actually called Bildad a stupid ox, but perhaps the designation is an apt one, for this lumbering, dogged, dogmatic, dogmatist whose power of rhetoric outweighs his spiritual maturity. The whole of Bildad's second speech is a classic fire and brimstone sermon. Fire resides in the wicked's tent, he rants. Burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. Verse 15. If only Bildad realized that by terrorizing his friend with these dire warnings of damnation, he is actually treating him just the way Satan is, applying all his considerable skill to undermining Job's intimacy with God. Bildad is the epitome of the clever, articulate, authoritative, and virtually loveless Christian leader of today, end quote. A number of commentators give their take on Bildad and his sermon here in chapter 18. Um, Christopher Ash says that this is an outstanding sermon on hell. Ronald Henko points out that in Bildad's first 
first speech, his earlier one, both he and Zophar warned Job of the judgment of the ungodly, but now Bildad openly considers Joab, uh, Job excuse me, to be one of the ungodly, um, one of the wicked needing this warning directed personally to him. Highwell Jones asserts that now Bildad extends no hope to Job. Before there was hope extended if he would repent. Now apparently that window is past. There is no longer any interaction with Job's arguments, but only reaction, and a reaction that is marked with impatience and frustration with Job. Richard Belcher Jr. admits, although interaction between Job and Bildad continues, the dialogue decreases and angry attacks directed at each other increase. Anderson writes, Bildad's second speech is straightforward. It is no more than a long diatribe on the fate of the wicked, preceded by a few reproaches addressed to Job. So based on the main theme of Bildad's sermon, I've titled this sermon, Bildad's Second Speech, The Destiny of the Wicked. In uh, verses 1 through 4, we have a description of what I'm calling in our first point, the world as supposedly run by God. And then the second and third points come out. Um, The second point is what happens to the wicked. The third point, a destiny wrongly applied to Job. So we begin with the world as supposedly run by God. So these opening verses here are designed to paint Job as a very prideful man. Um, he is accused of pridefully looking down on Bildad and his companions on the basis of how he has spoken rudely to them. Worse yet, he is accused of pride for thinking the world should be run differently by God just for him. The goal is to paint Job as self-absorbed, as a self-absorbed egotist who thinks that he knows the truth better than everybody else and expects God to cater to him. In verse 2, the question is raised, how long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Now, Some believe that Bildad here is asking this question of his companions because the word you is in the plural in the Hebrew, but the your of verse 3 is also plural, which is clearly directed to Job. And so then we are faced with the question, why would Job be addressed with a plural you? And the general consensus among commentators is that Job here is being addressed as a representative of a group. In other words, how long will you all hunt for words? So that the you to which Job belongs is a group. Bildad is probably doing what Job did. Job was responding to Zophar back in chapter 12, verse 2, but also in the hearing of the others when he said, no doubt you, a plural, You are the people, and wisdom will die with you. It's thought that now Bildad is responding to Job in a similar way, addressing Job as belonging to a group, that notorious group of people who think that they can challenge the established wisdom of the church and have bought into this ridiculous idea that suffering is not necessarily divine retribution. And uh, this isn't the only way that Bildad is responding to Job in kind. Um, In verse 2, Bildad is clearly offended when he asks, why are we counted as cattle? That's actually verse 3. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? And it's likely that Bildad is responding angrily here to what Job said back in chapter 12, 
verses 7 and 8, when Job said, but ask the beasts, which would include cattle, but ask the beasts and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. And so Bildad apparently took those words of Job as saying about the wisdom of of him and his friends, I might as well ask advice from cattle. And of course, that would be very, a very insulting thing to say if in fact that is what Job said, but there's no reason to think that Job was calling his friends names. To say that Job was calling his friends cattle back in chapter 12 there that would be to twist his words. Job was saying to his friends back in chapter 12 that if you look at creation itself, it will teach you by way of analogy that this principle that the wicked always gets what's, what's coming is just not true. For in the animal and plant world, there is no protection that's given to the innocent and gentle. Violent predators, natural disasters have their way in destroying the beautiful and pleasant things of this world. But apparently Bildad took Job's words as a personal insult. In verse 4, Job um, is continued to be kicked while he is down. Um, uh, Bildad is again contradicting what Job said earlier and turning it against him. Uh, he says, Job has torn himself. Well, what had Job said earlier? When, in chapter 16, verse 9, Job said of God, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. Job portrayed God as coming against him like a wild beast. And Bildad now defends God and denounces Job. He says, you tear yourself in your anger. He's essentially telling Job, God's not the wild beast, Job. You are the wild beast. And your anger has turned you into a beast. Lashing out at God, lashing out at us only proves your guilt. You've gotten yourself all worked up. You've turned yourself into an emotional mess because you are angry with God, but you're only hurting yourself by holding on to and expressing your anger when what you really need to do is repent. The end of verse 4, Bildad pulls out all of the stops in his attempts at discrediting Job. He asks, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? Back in chapter 14, verse 18, Job remarked, but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. This seems to be the quote that Bildad is referencing as, again, he twists Job's words to accuse him of saying something very self-centered and egotistical. Bildad is portraying Job as wanting the whole universe to be reconstructed to suit him. The idea is that in Scripture, the, the mountains and the rocks, they symbolize the unchanging natural order of the world. They bring to mind stability. They bring to mind moral order. And Bildad is going on in the is going to go on here in the rest of his sermon to defend the principle of him and his friends that this world is marked by strict retribution. And what I mean by strict retribution is that wickedness always meets with God's punishment according to his justice. And Bildad and his companions were quite sure that the world God has created and the world that God has maintained since the fall is a world of order where wickedness is always punished. In fact, so certain is this pattern that the connection actually works both ways. The wicked are punished by God, and when someone is being punished by God, you can be certain they are wicked. Job has challenged that pattern that, and that principle. He has insisted that he is suffering as an innocent person. 
And Bildad is now saying if that, for that to be true, Job is expecting God to set aside the entire creation order for him. For Job to be acquitted without repentance would be no different than God just walking away from the earth and leaving it to its own chaos. Job is expecting the unchanging God to make an exception just for him. If Job is correct, the way that God always operates will need to be set aside in Job's case. This is the perspective of Bildad, and the implications are clear that Job apparently thinks that he is mighty important, that God would change the entire moral order of the universe just for him. But what did Job, what was he actually talking about in his reference to the mountains and the rocks back in chapter 14? He was there talking about death. And the erosion of a mountain is a fitting picture of the inevitability of death. Job was not making there some kind of an outrageous claim that God should move mountains on his behalf. He was simply describing his slow descent into death by using the analogy of the erosion of mountains and rocks. It's evident that Bildad had already made up his mind about Job, which is why so much of what Job says is twisted from its original meaning into something to be used against him. This is something that we find that went on in the Lord's life. His words often twisted by his enemies. For example, he said, if the temple was destroyed, that he would rebuild it in three days. And his enemies twisted that and accused him of saying that he would destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. Bildad is an unloving enemy who is only thinking about his reputation. He is the proud one. And as such, he knows he's right. So he's not really interested in hearing Job's defense, not really trying to understand him. And he believes that by going against accepted wisdom, Job is the one whose thinking is undoubtedly skewed. With no other possibility, Bildad says in verse 2 to Job, Consider, that is, think about the situation. Job, you need to think about what's going on here and come to your senses. Admit uh, the truth of what we've been telling you and then we will speak. What happens to the wicked? Verses 5 through 21 are verses that have as one goal the defense of that principle of strict retribution. Bildad is determined to show how the moral order of the universe works and what happens to the wicked. And notice that Bildad is not only talking about what happens to the wicked at death, he's talking about what happens to them in their earthly lives. At the same time, certainly the judgment that he depicts is expected to carry forward into death and to come to its fullest and complete expression in hell. But still, Bildad is thinking primarily about Job's earthly troubles. He expects Job to see his life mirrored in what happens to the wicked in the here and now. Hell is but the experience of what began in this life. And he wants Job to understand that he is currently in a living hell because he is under the wrath of God. And since these verses are filled with references to darkness and light, I want to begin with the quick exposition of what is meant in scripture by darkness and light. So light is used in scripture in connection with God's favor and strength, with health, with wealth, with happiness, with life itself, with truth, wisdom, knowledge, the very glory of God himself who is said to dwell in unapproachable light. 
Darkness, by contrast, is associated with God's curse, sickness, poverty, despair, death, lies, ignorance, and the absence of God in his glory and grace. And as I begin to expound now verses 5 through 21, I'm basically following the outline that's offered by Christopher Ash in his commentary with some modification. But he sees in Bildad's sermon five descriptions of hell. I've narrowed it down to four. But notice these descriptions of hell. First of all, that hell is the place of total darkness. This would be verses five and six. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. Even Job has talked about Sheol as a place of darkness. Back in chapter 17, verse 12, Job is quoted, If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness. Sheol is the name for the grave. And as Job has thought about his impending death, his thoughts have consistently viewed Sheol as a very negative place. Bible students have picked up on Job's negativity and have extrapolated from what he says that the Old Testament believers didn't have the hope of heaven. That's what some have said and, and, um, and uh, viewed their futures beyond this life in a, in a hopeless and despairing sort of way. And I've already to some degree dealt with that idea. I've pointed out that a view like that is inconsistent with the testimony of Scripture in both the Old Testament and New Testament. The believers in all ages have had hope at, that at death they will go to be with God. And as just one example, the end of Psalm 23 is David anticipating being with God forever. We're told in Scripture that Abraham's hope was in a city which has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So how do we reconcile the eternal hope of God's people, even in the Old Testament, with the things that Job says? Well, Job's view of his future after death as something dark and scary is because he knows very well that a person's relationship with God on earth is going to carry over into the next life when he dies. Because Job believes God is angry with him in this life, he doesn't understand why, but because he believes God is angry with him in this life, he naturally figures death is only going to make matters worse. And with the darkness that has descended upon him in this life, he anticipates the grave being a very dark place indeed. And Bildad agrees. He describes the wicked being enveloped in darkness using essentially two proverbs. The first proverb in verse 5 uses plural forms and therefore describes in general what happens to the wicked. And the second proverb of verse 6 uses singular forms and is meant for Job personally. Notice that it speaks here of the wicked having some light taken away, which tells us that the light here in in this instance is not spiritual understanding because the wicked, wicked unbelievers, are in total darkness. After the fall for fallen man, there is no light that can be taken away in the sense of spiritual light, but there is the light of earthly prosperity. There is the enjoyment of God's good creation that even the wicked have to some degree. And Bildad says the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. And Anderson says, this is describing, quote, an extinguishing of the household lights of everyday life. 
principle being here that those who live in sin are going to experience the loss of good things, even in this life. That's the important point. A fire in biblical times was used for warmth, for cooking, for light, for family and friends in the evening. A warm fire and food and fellowship enjoyed around a fire was something that believer and unbeliever alike could look forward to in a cold, hard world. And for that light to be put out and no longer shine depicts poverty, it it, it depicts loneliness and loss. And in verse 6, Bildad applies this to an individual we know Job is meant. There's no light in his tent. His lamp or torch is put out. In this life, the wicked are deprived of wealth, of family, and fellowship as part of God's judgment. At death, the wicked are then plunged into total darkness, away from the presence of the Lord, and thus stripped of everything good and lovely they once enjoyed on earth. Surely Job is, to be, is here being reminded of the fact that he's lost his wealth, he's lost his family. Job, this darkness has happened to you, Bildad is saying. You fill in the blanks. You draw your own conclusions. Second, hell is the place of inescapable punishment. Verses 7 through 10, his strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down, for he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him, a rope is hidden for him in the ground, and a a trap for him in the path. You can see that the dominant theme of these verses is the word trap. Six words for a trap used here. The wicked man starts out with strong steps, which depicts his power, his confidence, thus him at first enjoying something of a prosperous life. He has a place in this world. He can go places. He can get things done. But then there is a reversal as his strong steps are shortened. He ends up shuffling along. And the cause, we are told, is his own schemes. His own craftiness becomes his demise. And it's a common theme, right, in wisdom literature that crooked paths, the paths of the wicked, are filled with trouble. The wicked man is cast into a net by his own feet. It's his own doing. And the mesh in the second part of verse 8 refers to branches that are spread over a pit. The wicked man thinks he's walking on solid ground but ends up falling into this pit. The wicked man thinks that he's walking and falls. He's gripped in another example by the heel and held by a snare. A loop of rope is hidden for him there on the ground so that he's caught by a hunter even as he walks down a path. The wicked cannot escape being trapped trapped by their sin into more and more sin and ultimately into judgment. Chapter 10, verse 16, Job said that God hunts him. In chapter 13, 27, Job describes God putting his feet in stocks and trapping him in prison like a criminal. In chapter 3, verse 23, Job says that God has hedged him in. And so Job is described in many instances being uh, feeling like he's trapped and unable to escape from God's judgments. Hell will be like this. The wicked not able to escape from God's wrath. Job, this is no coincidence that you have described yourself in this very way. This is what happens to the wicked. Thirdly, hell is the place of insatiable terror. Verses 11 through 14. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. 
He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Theoretically, a man could be put in prison and that prison could be like a resort. He can't escape, but perhaps he doesn't want to. But now we understand the nature of the punishment that the wicked cannot escape from. They are trapped in a nightmare. This section is bookmarked by the word terrors, which describe the pain and suffering of God's judgments. The wicked will do his best to suppress his, his misery. He turns to entertainment and perhaps drugs, alcohol, anything to distract him from his misery. But his sense of guilt and his dissatisfaction dogs his every step. We wonder here if the terrors that Bildad is describing are external or internal. If internal, the wicked man's discouragement, his hopelessness have sapped his strength. There in verse 12, his strength is famished. These internal struggles have just sapped his strength, leaving him with no vigor for life. And that is certainly true to life. But yet everything else in these verses seems external and physical in nature. The calamity that is ready to take him down at a moment's notice is described in verse 13 really as disease. By the way, the skin disease sounds exactly like what Job was experiencing. The twofold result in verse 14 is that he loses the last stronghold of earthly joy and comes face to face with death itself. To be torn from the tent in which you trusted is to lose the very last stronghold of earthly joy. The word there in the Hebrew for tent can refer to, yes, a literal tent, but basically refers to a place of habitation where you would live with your family. It refers to your home. Even today, many who trust in their home, they do that in the sense of thinking that they can always count on the joy and comfort of family. People will you can see them being interviewed from time to time after a natural disaster, and they will talk about how they've lost everything, perhaps to a tornado or an earthquake, and yet they can say they're happy and that they're able to push forward because they're with family. Family can become an idol of hope. The wicked, Bildad says, are torn away from their homes and families. All that is left for them to face is the king of terrors, which we understand to be death itself. Job, you have spoken in chapter 6, verse 4 of God's terrors being arrayed against you. In chapter 9, verse 34, and in chapter 13, 31, you have held out the hope that through an arbiter, or otherwise perhaps in some way, you will no longer be terrified by dread of God. So Job, you've admitted to being terrorized by God. Did you catch all that I said about the wicked? They lose their homes. They lose their families. They are consumed by disease. Do you see the point? You are experiencing hell. You are experiencing the life of the wicked. And then fourth place, hell is the place of total dissolution and separation. Verses 15 through 21, in his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the east Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. 
In verses 15 and 16, what stands out there is fire, which is a very destructive force that turns the living and beautiful into ashes and is thus a very fitting picture of a person's life disintegrating away. The judgment of God is multifaceted in its effects. These verses highlight how God separates the wicked from their earthly lives in such a way that all that they knew, all that they experienced, all that they accomplished wastes away into oblivion. Verse 15 is probably best translated, fire resides in his tent. And the sulfur of the second half of verse 15 is really brimstone, bringing to mind the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 16 pictures a tree destroyed by fire, root and branch. Seems obvious that Bildad wishes to contradict Job's hope that was expressed back in chapter 14, 7 for a tree that's cut down. Remember back in chapter 14, he initially describes a tree sprouting back after it's cut down. And um, he initially describes it as um, this tree that sprouts back after it's cut down as the opposite of what happens to man at death. Um, But Job Job goes on to explain in the context that this finality of death applies only to life on this sin-cursed world, on this sin-cursed earth as we know it. No one will be raised back to life into this life. At the same time, Job expresses hope for the resurrection of the body into the new heavens and new earth. He doesn't put it in exactly those terms, but he talks about he's waiting for this time of renewal. And in the end, man will be like that tree then that is cut down but sprouts again. Well, Bildad now contradicts that hope. The man who is torn from his tent in this life, what Bildad has just spoken of in verse 14, will end up losing all of his relationships for eternity. This is the meaning of fire residing in his tent. All of the good things of family and home are destroyed and lost. You'll hear people, the wicked, talk in a joking way about how, at least in hell, they will be with their family and friends and they can enjoy their misery together. But what Bildad rightly describes here is the loss of all fellowship and friendship. All of what his habitation used to be, the memories of family, making a living from his land, enjoying wealth, whatever he did here on earth, all of those things are burned away. All connections to this earth are obliterated. In verse 16, the figure turns personal, and the wicked man is pictured as a tree whose roots are dried up and his branches wither before the fires of God's judgments. Probably are thinking of the opposite, which is found in Psalm 1, there in the description of the godly man who is like a tree that, quote, yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And what does the psalmist go on to say? The same thing, really, pretty much as Bildad says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The godly man prospers in this life and in the life to come under the favor of God. The wicked man fades away and all that he was on this, in this world is ultimately, ultimately lost, even to the degree that his memory perishes from the earth. He has no name in the street, verse 17. Reputation and the name that he made for himself here on earth comes to nothing. Verses 18 and 19 has him thrust from light into darkness, driven from the world leaving no offspring or descendants, not even a survivor, the end of his household in this life and in the life to come. 
God's judgment against the wicked is such that every possible way a man might try to leave a mark on this world of, of something truly worthwhile and of, and of eternal significance, it will come to nothing. No name, no descendants, no nothing. And the result is that a great warning here is issued that all people, west or east, can recognize. Those of the West, we are told, are appalled. They are astonished. They are awestruck. It's a word in the Hebrew that refers to being awestruck by judgment. Those of the East are horrified. They are frightened. The calamities that befall the wicked are so extreme and so thorough that no one doubts they are the result of God's judgment and are thus taken to heart. Bildad ends his sermon by summarizing the situation. These are the things that happen to the home's of the unrighteous. This devastating loss of life is what happens to those who don't know God. Job, you have lost your family and wealth. Everyone knows that when a person experiences these things, it's because he's under judgment as an unrighteous person who doesn't know God. The hell that I've just described is what the wicked experience. Draw your own conclusions. Put two and two together. As clearly as Job's life parallels the life of the wicked that Bildad has just described, Bildad is wrong. Christopher Ashe, he writes this, he says, Job 18 is an outstanding sermon on hell. In its structure, its theology, its rhetoric, and its persuasive force, in all of these things it is an exceptional sermon. It is said that Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was one of the most frightening sermons ever preached. Bildad can certainly rival that. I run a training course for preachers, Ash goes on to say. Had I heard Bildad preach this one, I would have had to have given him high marks on every count except one. Those who preach know well that the proper application of a sermon is perhaps the most difficult part to get right. Bildad gets this part horribly wrong. His sermon is so fundamentally misapplied that it needs to be consigned to the incinerator of failed sermons. It's not an edifying sermon, and yet to understand why it is unedifying will paradoxically be deeply edifying for us. And he goes on to explain in conclusion, Bildad and his friends are absolutely right. The cosmos is an ordered place. The universe is a cosmos, not a place of chaos. Hell is all the things that Bildad says it is. So where does Bildad go wrong? He goes wrong because Job is not wicked. Job is blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. A blameless and upright believer is enduring the torments of hell. But Bildad's system has no place for this. Reality is that wicked people do sometimes prosper and blameless believers do sometimes suffer undeserved grief, end quote. It should, be, it should be encouraging for you to know, believers, that something is not terribly wrong in your relationship with God if you are experiencing something of hell, as Bildad here describes. First, it is worth confirming that you are a believer, you need to examine yourselves. Are you trusting in yourself for eternal life? Have you repented of your sins? Are you looking to Jesus Christ alone for your righteousness? We are told that Job is righteous, the scripture says. Well, the only way to be righteous is by faith 
which for Job was faith in the coming Christ, for us in the Christ who has come. Trust in his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And if you, once you've established that you are trusting in Christ and that you are in that way righteous in God's sight through him, then don't be surprised if there is some darkness, if there is some feeling of being trapped in a world of sin, experiencing something of the consequences of sin, experiencing illness, experiencing circumstances that can be terrifying, feeling that the things that you are doing in this world are crumbling away and in vain. Losing loved ones, losing wealth, and struggling financially. All of these things should not be thought odd. They should not be thought incongruent with being a child of God. Jesus has told his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And how did Jesus overcome the world? By suffering. By suffering as the innocent Son of God. Suffering even to the point of death on the cross. One of the most remarkable things is to hear people talk about how Christians who are walking close to the Lord, we are told they won't experience tribulation. And they're to expect nothing but prosperity and the opposite of all of the things that Bildad has described. But do these people not think of the Apostle Paul? Do they not think of what life was like for him? Do they not think about Jesus? How can we expect to escape suffering? Are we greater than our master? Notice, we as believers aren't even suffering the punishment of sin, which is actually what Jesus Christ did for us. Again, to quote from Christopher Ashe, he says, Supremely, Job's experience of hell is fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ entering into hell for us on the cross. When Jesus went to hell for us, the land was cast into supernatural darkness, Mark 15.33. He felt himself dragged down into the inescapable punishment of sinners, the insatiable terrors of hell, and the total dissolution and separation of his relationship with his father and from his earthly relationships as his friends abandoned him to the world's mockery and disgrace. And he did it to redeem sinners. He went to hell that we might go to heaven. The book of Job makes no ultimate sense without the cross of Christ, end quote. The cross makes you all who trust in Christ, makes you people who suffer for a purpose, a purpose that lines up with your salvation and that lines up with God's glory as a God of mercy and grace, ultimately delivering us through Christ from that life of darkness that we deserve. Praise God. He has given us Christ to make that payment for us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we are reminded this morning of the realities of hell, we are reminded of what you have delivered us from through the person and work of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us as we experience something of these things in this life to recognize that Christ has paid the penalty of hell for us. So our experience of these things cannot possibly be punishment. And so, Father, we thank you that through Christ, our sufferings have been transformed and uh, are not uh, a judicial experience of your wrath. Lord, we thank you for the comfort and the hope that these truths give us. May these truths 
um, dwell deep in our hearts, giving us great comfort even as we face tribulations, even as we face the realities of hell um, in a way. But yet, Father, we thank you that Jesus on the cross was able to say, it is finished, as he suffered in our place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.